to begin, turn please to Job chapter 1, starting at verse 6 in your Bible, if you're able to do so. And if not, I think we have the words available for you today. Job chapter 1, starting at verse 6, we're going to read to verse 12. And then we'll begin unpacking what will be several weeks of messages from the book of Job. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came along among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions and have increased and increased his land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. Uh, did I misread that? And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. I don't like that wording very well. Sorry. What's that one say? The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Yeah, I like that one better too. That's going to be really important if we're going to understand this. So sometimes, you know, you want more than one uh, uh, translation available to you. So this is the word of God for the people of God, and we give thanks to God for that. Okay. So I didn't mean to trivialize the reading of Scripture, but at the same time, there's not much point in trying to explain some of this if we're not comfortable with the reading that, that we just used. And if you come to my Bible study on Wednesday nights, I always include a certain amount of instruction about just the various versions of the Bible that are out there and why we choose one version over another and, and the various origins of Scripture. So you get a lot of ex, uh, not only knowledge about the Bible story or, or book that we're reading, but we also try to talk about Bible study in a general sense as well. So today we're going to begin this series of messages from the book of Job. And the objective really from this series is, is you know, you could spend a year on the book of Job. It's pretty long and involved, but we're really taking a, a kind of overview of Job. And our main objective in this series is going to be first to really increase our faith in God. And then secondly, to really have a healthy and appropriate understanding of the nature of evil. And then the last thing we're going to learn, hopefully, is how to trust God, even when God doesn't make any sense. Because we all, sooner or later, are confronted with a time when we wonder if we can even trust God. Because something's going on that you thought God would deliver you from, and then yet there you are. The reality is, is that there is evil in the world and there's a lot of bad things that happen every day, even in our church, even in our own household. There are places where evil manifests. And it's not always someone who is deliberately being evil, but simply giving themselves over to evil so that that 
is somehow undermining the will of God. And so what we want to understand through this series is, as I said, how to be more faithful to God and to be more aware of evil and its effects in our lives. The thing we understand about God, first of all, is, is that sometimes God feels very near. And then there are other times when God seems so far away, we wonder if God even is there. Job had this same problem, and yet, as Courtney said to the children, he loved God very much. We're going to find, as we take this uh, introductory look at the book of Job today, we're going to recognize that, that in the end, he, he does exceed God's expectations. And so we find out that Job is a truly remarkable guy who really loves the Lord despite everything that might have taken his faith away from God. And yet he complained in one part of scripture that God was watching him too carefully so that he couldn't even swallow his own spit without God noticing. But then he complains a couple of chapters later that it feels like God seems very concerned about humanity except right now. And so Job is every person. He's just like all of us. There are people who, who are feeling as though God has scrutinized every little thing they do one minute and then the next minute they're thinking, well, where is God anyway? And does God even care? And the fact is, is that God's reasoning is very difficult for us to grasp at times. And for this reason, we can really identify with Job's friends who will appear in the story eventually in our study. And they will do certain things really well. Like one of the best things his friends ever did was to sit silently for seven days. Right? Have you ever had a really bad series of events in your life? And the most comforting thing that happened was just friends who sat and just were there. Job's friends didn't really mess up until they started talking. And then when they started talking, well, they were just trying to explain God from an utterly human perspective. Instead of having that same kind of relationship with God that Job had, they had a religious relationship with God, and they had a cultural understanding of God. And so all of the advice they gave him was them expressing their great wisdom about God as though God were the sort of object of a particular study of a historical uh, being, you know, instead of a personal, intimate relationship like Job felt that he had with God. And then as we go through the book of Job, we begin to see that, uh, you know, it isn't so much about Job as it might seem. And how often have I said to you and to myself, even more often in private, that the most important thing any of us can remember if we're going to be really faithful servants of God is it's not about me. That there's something cosmic going on here. That there is something about all of this that exceeds us. So it doesn't mean that God isn't personally interested in us and not personally involved in our lives. But it does also mean that while God has taken a stake in us and really invested in us on a personal level, God is also dealing with a huge, grand scheme that is beyond our comprehension. And that sometimes Job, in this case, suffered simply because there was something beyond him going on that was behind it all. And how many times do you suppose that happens in your life? And so we'll learn by looking at Job that there are times in our lives that if we want it to be all about us, our personal suffering feels like something very personal and private and, well, frankly, selfish, all about me. And God wants you to see that it isn't about you. That you're not the center of the universe. That you're not the most important thing. 
and that you don't always get what you want and you don't always go through life without suffering. And so God gives us opportunities to experience that. God reveres Job. We're going to find out as we study in this, this book that God's actually taking a great risk on Job. That there's a, there's a huge sort of wager going on here between God and the one that we'll call the accuser in a minute. Because the one who is accusing God is saying, Job doesn't love you, he just worships you because if he does, you give him what he wants. That's what that passage I wanted to get right was all about. God says, uh, the, the accuser says to God, Job is a great guy. As long as you give him what he wants, he keeps giving you what you want. So really, God, what is your problem? What do you, you know, why do you think he's so special? And God knows instinctively in God's heart that Job is a good guy who really loves God. But now it's going to be put to the test. And there's a sense as this book progresses in our reading that, that God's taken a chance here. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And so sometimes what you're going through isn't about you, but what God wants to know about you. And so those are those things that more often than not make sense in retrospect. When you look back over your life years later and you realize what came of certain parts of your life, certain consequences and certain outcomes in your life, you begin to realize probably had more to do with bigger things than you realized at the time. And so our lives are like a tapestry, as that illustration has often been used, that, that sometimes you don't really see how it all goes together until a lot of it is done. And so that's why we get a little wiser at the end of our lives. In fact, the book of Job is considered wisdom literature by Bible scholars, meaning that it's among that body of books like Proverbs and Psalms and so forth that are considered the wisdom of the Bible. And so we're supposed to read Job because there's wisdom in it. And that's what we're going to do with this series. Now, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to talk about a couple of particular aspects of the story we just read or the passage we just read. I'm, I'm pretty fond of reading long uh, scripture passages to you. But believe it or not, with the book of Job, I'm really confined to just limited passages because it would be very difficult to read you enough and still have time to share some thoughts about it. And so we take this one particular passage about this one particular encounter between the accuser and God. Now, the Hebrew word for Satan is actually pronounced Satan, okay? Satan. In my notes, I've written it phonetically for you. And it's traditionally the word that is given as a proper name for Satan, but that's not really true. Satan is a word that we Christians like to throw around all the time, and he's certainly mentioned in a more formal way and almost named, you could say, in the book of Revelation as, you know, Mr. Satan, the guy, right? But in reality, Satan is what the Hebrew would use to describe him in this case. In fact, throughout the book of Job, he's actually described with uh, an extra element where his name would better be pronounced Hosatan or Ha-Satan. And that's like the. So in other words, his name in English would be the Satan. Okay. In scripture, in the original language, it would have been Hosatan or Hasatan. And what that means is the accuser. 
He's the accuser. And a way to think about it as the, the language of the Bible would have us understand it is that it's not as though a fellow named Satan walked in one day to God's court and began to make accusations, but rather that, that this is like the prosecuting attorney, you know? Like, like, and his whole mission is to prosecute God. And so the accuser isn't a proper name of a particular person as much as it is a job description. This is the, the role that this one assumes. And it makes sense if you think about it, for example, in terms of the Garden of Eden. You remember what happened in the Garden of Eden. There was a tree they weren't supposed to eat from, and they were doing fine until this serpent came. And there's a whole story around the serpent I'd love to share with you right now. But, but anyway, this serpent, probably not a snake, comes and it turns out it's Hosatan or Hasatan. It's, it's the accuser. And what is he saying to Eve? He's saying, I don't think God is telling you the whole story. And so she is allowed, she's invited to doubt God's character and to, to question God's goodness and to question God's motives. And she chose to do so. At which case she's given her will over to the accuser rather than to the Lord of truth. And so this accuser, this Hasatan, he's, he's all over scripture. And this is what has happened in this passage we read today. The accuser has walked in, and, and I, I really, uh, I don't know how many of you, this is an outdated reference already, but I really, uh, there are certain characters in the Harry Potter movies, you know, they're little bitty guys, they're kind of like uh, dwarves or whatever, and they really hateful looking characters, big pointy ears and hair all over their ears and their noses and everything, and they're just, you know, grumpy people. But they are dressed very formally, and they carry the little briefcase, and they've got their whole, their, their whole package of, of uh, arguments. And they go in and enter the courtroom as a, as a sort of legal team from hell. And all the partying stops for a minute, and they say, we'll have a word with you now, God. And God says, sure, what's on your mind? Where you been? Oh, we've been wandering around, God. We've been watching. And we have a few things we'd like to point out to you. And as though God already knows where this is going, he says, did you look at Job? Yes. Well, what's your problem with him? We think that the only reason... He worships you and serves you so well is because you give him everything he needs and wants. So his worship isn't about real love for you as much as it is a give and take. Quid pro quo, you might say. And the little ornery prosecuting team, they all sort of cackle. Ha, we got him now. And God says, all right. Go ahead, take it all away from him. Just don't hurt him. And then, as we will learn as we progress in this series, they do some horrible things to Job. There's question in this Bible reading about whether it's God that actually afflicts Job or whether it's Satan, but what it seems like to me is more often the case even in our current reality is, is that God doesn't really afflict us as much as God doesn't prevent it, which makes a big difference. 
and is more consistent. Because to me, one of the most important benefits of reading scripture and becoming knowledgeable about the Bible is because you begin to understand the character of God. And one of the character traits of God that's so important is that God is always good. And so if God should afflict us in some way, that would seem to injure God's reputation as being always good. On the other hand, if God should reserve protection or provision for some reason, well, that's kind of like a parent who takes certain things away from their children for their own good, like all the extra candy they got this morning, <laughs> for example. They'll be fine. <laughs> Because they're not going to your house. <laughs> Next week, she's giving all your children drums to play at your house. <laughs> Can you tell I'm a veteran dad? So, what's this mean? Well, it means that God's character is being called into question. And God's motives are being called into question. And what the accuser would like to point out to God is, is that he's gambling on Job and he's liable to find out that Job really is just all about the rewards of a relationship with God and not too interested in God when things aren't going well. And so we need to understand this is the very nature of evil. Evil always calls into question the character of God or God's representative in this case. The evil one is always using the accusers. Whenever you're in any kind of function, and I, and I hesitate to say this to you because I don't want to sound cynical, but I've been a pastor a long, long time. And I can tell you that whenever I'm in a church meeting and someone starts pointing that bony finger and making accusations, Satan is there. You can always find Hasatan in the accusations. Whenever someone is trying to tear down another person's character in order to get their way or win the argument, even in church, there's where you see the Hasatan. How do you guard against that in your home or in your church meetings or anything else? Well, that's one of the reasons we're doing this study. So that we can have a better understanding of the nature of evil and recognize it when it happens around us. And one of the surest signs that evil has entered the room is in accusations. Because it's the very nature of evil. It's description in the Lord's, the, the language of the Bible, it says plainly, Hasatan, the accuser, has arrived. And he's making subtle and not so subtle comments about the character of certain people and God himself. Now, I gotta pick up the pace a little bit here. Um, one of my favorite theologian and apologists, of course, uh, an apologist is a person who explains Bible things, doctrinal things, theological things. Someone who can make us understand the difficult to understand is called an apologist is C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis, and lately I've been rereading a lot of my favorite things. In fact, I'm, I'm on the second to last book in the Chronicles of Narnia right now, and uh, I was thinking about him in relation to this story because he was one of the few people that was really bold enough to go ahead and explain why evil is necessary in our lives and why suffering is 
necessary in our lives. He was there trying to explain to people during an a era of World War II where his home country and town of London are being bombed regularly by the Germans and he's trying to explain to people whilst, while this is all happening why suffering is okay, why it's part of the plan. And he knows this isn't going over very well with people. He even said in his own words, all arguments in justification of suffering provoke bitter resentment against the author. Because what they really want to know is, is how do you deal with suffering? And not so much what your books say about suffering. Well, the fact is, is that C.S. Lewis knew more than his fair share about suffering. He had suffered the trenches of World War I. He watched the horrific bombings and the weapons of mass destruction that were beyond imagination of World War II. He had heard of the death camps in Europe and he had seen how all that evil from the major world war, you know, World War I and World War II were basically the same war. They just took an intermission is really what it came down to. And, and he witnessed all of this. And then he even had in his own life the one and only true love he'd ever experienced with another human being, only to lose her prematurely to cancer. So he knew a little bit about suffering, and yet he believed all the more in God's goodness, and his faith in God increased. And we're going to kind of pay, take a parallel track in this series on that one as well, to try to understand how he developed such a strong faith in God despite the terrible suffering, and such a confidence in God's goodness despite the ever-present evil. And the way to look at it that probably best describes it is understanding that there is this thing called original sin. One of his contemporaries, C.S. Lewis had a contemporary, a guy he liked to read, who was G.K. Chesterton. And uh, Chesterton said, people reject the idea of original sin when it is the only doctrine of Christianity that can be empirically proven. In other words, if you don't believe in original sin, all you got to do is read the newspaper or watch the news or just hang out with other people for a while. And all of a sudden you see that sin is in every heart, that sin is in every person. And this is the one thing that Christians believe that can be proven because you really don't have to look very long or listen very long to see it. And so Lewis will go on to say that it is the struggle to extricate that evil from ourselves that is the first step towards really managing our relationship with God and with evil. And so we have a tendency to be self-centered and then focus all of our energy on the other people's sin and how it afflicts or affects us. And what God would have you do is understand that your sin is your primary problem. And other people's behavior and other people's sin is not something you can fix or control. And so manage your problem because that you can manage and that you can do with the help of God. What we're really talking about here is something that is both seen and unseen. Just like I said about Job as it being more than just a story of Job, it's a cosmic struggle. There's an invisible side to everything that you are experiencing in your life. Everything we experience corporately, everything that I see in front of me, there is both the visible and the invisible. 
I could argue that there are invisible forces right now that would like very much for me to stop talking about this because you might actually begin to trust God more and recognize evil more readily. And so there's this cosmic battle going on that we can't see that makes a difference even in something as simple as one man sharing a message with another group of people from the Bible. And so this naturally causes the the empirical thinker, the scientist, the practical person to question whether or not there's even a, a, a modicum of sanity in a person like me because I would dare to say that there's this whole invisible realm that contains all of these not seen things and uh, that's why atheists, that's their biggest argument is an atheist with or even some of the Hindu uh, beliefs center around the idea that there's no way you can prove that evil is real and then they might as well say then there's no way he could prove God is real. And there's a whole line of thinking there that says we don't believe in anything we can't see with our own two eyes that you can't experience with your five senses. And yet we wouldn't be here if we thought that was true. And the truth is, is that life's ugly enough even without a system of faith so that if you have a system of faith, at least you have a way of in interpreting what's happening that gives you peace and that's the point so there's a phrase there a little saying in in the the silver chair which is the chronicle of narnia book that i'm on right now that really spoke to me about this this week i'm trying to figure out how to set the stage for you without taking too long but basically in this story there are three characters who are being held captive by a witch who could be a representative of satan the accuser and this witch is accusing Oh, you guys believe in this false world called Narnia. You believe in this weird godlike creature called Aslan. And all I can tell you is the only reality there is is what I see right in front of me right now. And she happens to be in a dark place under the earth. And, and so she's trying to tell them that all the things they think that are true and real aren't. Because if they were, you'd be able to see them. And then one of the characters is starting to believe this lie is beginning to they're all beginning to fall under the spell of this logic and reasoning and and then the one brave character in there uh in the story uh his name's puddle glum and he's a marsh wiggle sound great and puddle glum realizes what's happening and so he deliberately thrusts his hand into the fire that is nearby until it starts to burn and he is snapped into reality and then he says this to the witch suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and aslan himself suppose we have then all i can say is that in that case the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones suppose this black pit of kingdom of yours is the only world well it strikes me as a pretty poor one and that's a funny thing when you come to think of it, we are just babies making a game, if you're right. But for babies playing a game, if, but for babies playing a game can make it a world that will lick yours hollow. I kind of muddled that up. What he's saying is, is, I know the world's ugly. I've seen the trenches. I've seen the bombs. I've seen the faithlessness and the bitterness and the pain. And all I can say is, is it's a pretty ugly place to live. And I'd rather reach out and grasp what could be, what certainly will be. 
And this is what you're going to find about Job as we go into this story of Job, is that in the midst of it all, he clings to the image of his Redeemer, who he will see in the flesh with his own eyes one day, no matter what. He keeps holding on to something bigger than the present reality. And that's the difference between us and our atheistic and cynical people that we know in our worlds. So, as strange as it might seem, there really is a lot more going on in the unseen realms. And my goal as your pastor and friend is to try to help you be more aware of that and to see it more clearly. Well, we've got a lot to accomplish in this series, as you can see, because all I did today was give you the syllabus for the series. So let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Please bless your hearers with a greater sense of your reality that is outside of the seen things. Please help them to know you, even in the midst of their difficulties, and to keep the faith and receive your joy. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.